0: Hello again and welcome to The Painful Truth, I'm Tony Payne and in this week's edition it's time to address your questions and comments, to pause from the regular rhythm of painful episodes and the various topics that we've been talking about and to get to some of the many excellent questions and comments that you keep sending in and do please send them in. You can contact me and send a question On the website, as part of the Painful Truth posts there, you can just go to the end of one of the posts, and if you're a partner, you can just drop in a a question or comment there. Uh, The website address is thepainfultruth.online, thepainfultruth.online, or you can just email me, and uh, some of the questions today come from emails and some from the website. Uh, My email address to send me a question is just tonyjpain, P-A-Y-N-E, at me.com, tonyjpain at me.com. Well, let's dive into some of the questions. The first bunch of questions relate to the Gospel, which is always a great topic to start with, because over the past several months I've been talking a decent amount about the Gospel, especially in relation to Two Ways to Live and the revision and refreshing and relaunching of all the Two Ways to Live resources that I've been working on. And that work, incidentally, is continuing apace, the Two Ways to Live sort of tracked booklet uh, form of Two Ways to Live is well advanced in production and so is the uh, the Two Ways to Live training courses are, are advanced in their rewriting and redrafting and we're trialing them in various contexts. So that's all still happening. But those posts about the gospel and our preaching of it prompted various comments and questions and they've been ongoing. Uh, John, for example, uh, wrote with this fascinating question. With regard to preaching the cross and the resurrection... Obviously, Christ crucified is a big deal, as in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 2, 2. So the cross has got to be there in our preaching. But in Acts, John writes, there's so much on the resurrection and preaching the resurrection. It's the resurrection that gets Paul into trouble with the religious leaders, and it's the resurrection that he preaches in Acts 17. The question that arises, at least for me, have to do with how do we know when and where to focus on one or the other and why the shift or change or difference in focus in Paul's preaching. Great question. How do we preach the cross and the resurrection and how do they fit together in the gospel? Well, it's interesting to me that when Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians, comes to summarise the gospel that he received and which he faithfully delivered to the Corinthians in his proclamation, in 1 Corinthians 15, he pretty straightforwardly includes both the cross and the resurrection. In fact, he also throws in the burial um, and the witnesses to the resurrection as part of what he passed on to them, as part of a gospel proclamation. And I think that's just to make sure that his hearers appreciated that this really was a real historical death and resurrection. But anyway, these three verses from 1 Corinthians 15 uh, are the nutshell gospel summary that Paul says he proclaimed to them. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Cross and resurrection, it seems to me, are inseparable in the nutshell gospel presentation. In one context, of course, you might lean harder on one than on the other. You might lean on the cross, as Paul does at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, when he's particularly addressing the issues in the Corinthian church, for which the message of the cross is the antidote. But even so, the resurrection is never all that far away. In fact, in that passage, in 1 Corinthians 1, the clue is in the word Christ. When he says that he knew nothing but Christ crucified, He's referring to the resurrected ruling Christ, the Lord of the world. That's who the Christ is. He's the one who was crucified. So even the absolutely minimalist gospel summary of Christ crucified contains within it both the idea of the death and crucifixion of Jesus and his reign and rule as the Christ, as the risen one. And indeed, as Paul gets towards the end of the letter... In chapter 15, he turns to the resurrection and thumps that pretty hard. Likewise, in Acts 17, you can say that Paul leads with the resurrection. It's certainly very prominent as he gets to the punchline of his sermon to the Athenians. But it's a resurrection from the dead. Resurrection does imply a death that precedes it, and Paul mentions that death. And I've no doubt that in discussing things further, as he does with Dionysius and Damaris and the others who are mentioned there in Acts 17, that the meaning of that death was, was very fully and completely explained. In other words, I think the different emphases at different points in the New Testament's recording of how the gospel was preached show that every gospel presentation isn't exactly the same. But if we don't deliver, if I can use Paul's words, if we don't deliver the full message of both cross and resurrection to our hearers, whether that happens all at once or over our interaction with them over time, then I don't think we've been faithful gospel couriers, you might say. Faithful deliverers of the package that we were given and was handed on to us and that it's our job to faithfully pass on. And in my observation, if you're interested in my observation, over the past Three decades or so, looking at evangelical proclamation, at evangelical evangelism and gospel books and presentations, I think I'd say that by far the most common failure in our circles is a failure to integrate the resurrection completely and fully into our message. It's very often not mentioned or tacked on as a bit of an afterthought, and the result is that while we very often fully explore what it means for Jesus to offer forgiveness and salvation on the basis of his atoning death, we do quite often fail to proclaim Jesus as the risen Christ, as the Lord of all, the Lord of the world, before whom we must repent and whom we joyfully obey and serve as Lord of all. And when we don't proclaim that other aspect of the gospel that flows out of his resurrected life, his kingship, his his Christ-ship, then bad things tend to follow in terms of how people believe and respond to the gospel and how they think about the Christian life. So there you go. There's a second main gospel-related set of questions that have kept coming in in response to the Two Ways to Live material, and in particular, in response to my piece about One Gospel, Many Forms. And in that piece, I argue that although the people we meet and talk to, of course, all have a range of issues and questions and cultural backgrounds, and so every conversation we have with people will be different at some level, and often will start at a different point. Even so, the gospel that we end up explaining to all these different people with their different backgrounds will be the same gospel, the one gospel, the one we've just been talking about. It's not a different gospel for each person, crafted for their individual needs or aspirations or connecting with their particular desires or or cultural narratives. Now, I've had a number of fascinating conversations on this topic, um, and a new thought has occurred to me that I'd like to share, but I'm going to do that awful thing and tease you about it. It's a significant thought, and it's a big topic. I'm actually going to save this question for its own post next week, rather than try and squeeze it in here, and so stay tuned next week for a discussion of that gospel-related question: How do we preach a gospel that's it hits people where they are, that and that respects the fact that everyone comes to the gospel often with their own questions, in their own background, in their own history, while at the same time saying it's the one message; it's not a new or different message for every person, based on their desires, for example. I'll talk on that next week. And given that it's sort of a continuation of this week's Q&A kind of style thing, I'll make next week's post a, a free public one for everyone as well. But let's move on to the next subject, which is live streaming. A couple of weeks ago, I did a post on the ongoing usefulness of live streaming. Uh, in our church meetings, now that many of us are now meeting back together again, and the theological issues involved in particular. And it sparked quite a few really helpful comments and questions. Uh, Warwick wrote in, and he spoke for quite a few commenters when he said this, we find that increasingly folk check us out online before they come in person. It used to be that they just looked at our website, now it's joining with online church. We only had 10 weeks of meeting in person before we were closed down again. In those 10 weeks, we had so many people come who'd never been to a physical church meeting with us before, and a number of others got in touch with a similar thought. It seems that the new front door for many churches, if I can put it that way, over the past 12 months, has been their live stream, or their broadcasting in whatever way they've done it, and if we have the resources to maintain that over time and to keep the quality of it high, then as I mentioned last week, that does seem like an opportunity that is worth pursuing. But Peter wrote in with a more searching question about the nature of gathering, bouncing off last week's edition. He writes as follows. The one-hour Zoom gathering has many features of a physical gathering. We greet each other. We have lots of organized and more informal participation of participants during the meeting, including praying out loud, Bible readings and testimonies, and even gathering together in smaller groups to keep in touch and pray for each other. The sermon on YouTube is not unlike listening to the pastor preach, although perhaps it's easier to make comments out loud about the content and style that one would do in the presence of other church members. But obviously in a more touchy-feely culture, people really miss the physical aspect of greeting and farewelling. My reflection on that is that it's worth reflecting more carefully on what is the nature of gathering, By Zoom, we gather, we talk to each other, we edify each other. I've no doubt that Jesus is in our midst, whatever that means, in a virtual environment. So I'm interested to hear more on what constitutes gathering as a theological concept. Really perceptive question, Peter. And you're right, the Zoom gathering is certainly a Christian meeting or encounter. It provides for many excellent and edifying things to happen that also would happen were we physically together. And like all genuine expressions of Christian fellowship, the Zoom gathering does build the body of Christ in the sense that it builds the heavenly church of Christ through the word and prayer and people. And so the Zoom or virtual gathering does have some real theological heft behind it. It is a genuine Christian meeting in that sense. You might even say a genuine Christian gathering. All the same... Theologically speaking, I don't think we can escape the embodied nature of who we are, of our creatureliness, if I can put it that way. And therefore, we can't escape the embodied nature of gathering or assembling or churching. Because in a thousand different ways, being together bodily does shape the experience, it does make a difference. It shapes how we listen and how we preach, how we speak to each other, how we pray and sing and rejoice and cry, how we eat and drink together in the sense of the Lord's Supper and in other ways as well, and in a thousand other little ways that are hard to quantify. This mode of actually being together and encouraging each other as we do so, bodily, physically together, is the gathering that I think Hebrews 10 is telling us not to neglect. Even though the author of Hebrews certainly knows and affirms that we're together at all times in the heavenly gathering of of Hebrews 12. You might even say the virtual gathering of Hebrews 12, where we exist spiritually and in fellowship uh, as Christians in Christ. Now, none of this means, of course, that we should press for a return to physical gathering if in your part of the world it's, it's unsafe or unwise to do so. Perhaps the virtual gathering, the quasi-gathering that happens online in Zoom, is the best we can do and it's very valuable and it does contribute to Christian fellowship and encouragement. But I think theologically it does mean that the physical gathering is special and has priority because of our embodiedness. Well, that's my thought anyway. On to the third topic that I've been getting quite a few questions and comments about, about preaching. In last week's edition of The Painful Truth, I put forward a newish definition of preaching to think about, and it was as follows, that our goal when we preach is to do for our hearers what God was doing in the passage of Scripture we're expounding. Now, if that sounds a bit mysterious, if you weren't around for last week's episode or if you're a a non-partner reader just on the free public list and you don't know what on earth I'm talking about, I will open up access to that post on the website so that you can check it out and see what this is all about. But Angus and Simon got in touch, among many others, with questions on this topic, and they asked really variations of the same question, and I'll use Angus's framing of the question as a good summary. He says this... Is it reductionistic to think that the words on the page in any particular passage have only one act or there's only one thing that God is doing in that passage? He suggests, is that your implicit or explicit view? Uh, How does Israel respond to hearing and how do we respond to hearing? Does the cross reduce the text to having one major act? Does our eschatological position, where we are in, in the big history of, of God's work in the world mean that God's Word acts differently on us? Now, are these excellent questions? And if I can perhaps summarize Angus's four questions into one, I think what he's really asking is this: If I focus on what God is doing in this passage and try to do the same in my sermon for my hearers, won't I be at risk of flattening out the Bible? and missing its unfolding Christ-centered shape? In other words, what we often call biblical theology. Will I actually fail to preach Christ? Now, my short answer to this excellent question is as follows. What God is doing, what the particular speech act he's performing in a particular passage through the human author, it can't be isolated from what he's doing in the whole scriptural revelation, which focuses on and culminates, of course, in Christ. And we can't preach or explain or teach what God is doing in any particular passage, say any Old Testament passage, without having in our minds the context, that is, the meta-level New Testament explanation, for example, of God's overall purposes in his speech. For example, the New Testament says that when God spoke in the Old Testament, he was making promises that all pointed forward to Christ, That's what 2 Corinthians one twenty says. He was providing also examples and encouragement for his people. That's what 1 Corinthians 10.11 says. It says that whatever was written in the past was written for our edification and encouragement upon whom the end of the ages has come. And so we can't read the Old Testament passage. You can't see what's happening or what God is doing in that passage without zooming out and seeing it's part of a much larger action of God in history that spans all of history, in fact, and focuses in centrally on Jesus Christ. And likewise, with the New Testament, we can't really preach any New Testament passage without some awareness, and in some passages it will need to be a very keen awareness, of how what this passage is doing only makes sense really in light of what God has been doing for long ages past uh, through his Old Testament people. So the short answer is, yes, it would be reductionistic to think that the words on the page have one single act that isn't in a context of a larger set of acts that God is doing through his word in history. I think this is also where the action or force of a passage, that is what a passage is doing, and its expected or implied response are worth distinguishing because often the response of the original hearers, especially when those are Old Testament hearers, will be different in various ways from our response as readers, this side of Christ. But what God is doing as he speaks through this particular text still needs to shape the particular action and emphasis of our preaching as we apply it to our own lives and our own circumstances. Uh, Thanks for these questions, Angus and Simon. I hope that brief response is of some help. Now, as part of the training work at Campus Bible Study, where I've been developing this idea of what God is doing as a way of thinking about preaching, I've developed a little sort of preparation framework, how to prepare a sermon using this concept um, for the trainees to work on. And it teases out these ideas a little more and shows what it means in practice. I'll send that round as a bonus article sometime in the next week or so, and hopefully that might also help you to think through these ideas and stimulate you to think further. Well, this week's post, this Q&A kind of post, is one of the free public ones that I do send out every three weeks or so, although as I said, I think I'll make next week's edition a freebie as well, given it's a sort of a continuation of this week's. If you do want to get every edition every week and also at the same time provide some Valuable support for the broader writing ministry that I do, you can do that by becoming a partner, just for a few dollars a month. And to do that, you can go over to the website, that's thepainfultruth.online, and just click the subscribe button and you'll see all the options there. Well, that's about all for this Q&A episode of The Painful Truth. Thanks once again for all the questions and comments. I do enjoy them so very much, and it is part of what I'm hoping The Painful Truth will be, uh, not just me blathering on each week, but an opportunity for us to talk and discuss and reason together from the scriptures about what it means to live in light of the amazing truth of Christ crucified. So thank you for your encouragement, your questions. Uh, and your interactions on all these things. And I'll keep sharing them every now and then through these Q&A episodes so that we all benefit. Thanks once again for being with me this week. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.